for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. text for today comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Church, would you please welcome the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. Thank Thank you all for having me. John said that you all are not accustomed to having people preach to you all in a collar. I hope that's okay. If it makes you feel any better, I've never actually preached in tennis shoes. So I put on tennis shoes and a collar, so I felt like that that can balance it out. I want to thank John for his hospitality with like two notable exceptions. One, he's made me feel short (laughs) all week, and the inadequacy of my ability to grow a beard has also been made evident to me. But beyond that, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for everyone who's been gracious to me during my short time here in Tulsa. I'm gonna do two things, so that's okay. The first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk just about Lent for a really long time. You're gonna think, is he ever gonna talk about the Bible? Yes, the Bible part's gonna come at the end. Just don't don't worry, okay? We'll get to the temptation in a little bit. Because I wrote a book about Lent. And what is Lent? What's actually going on? Lent, or the season of Lent, is at bottom one way of encountering Jesus. The point of any liturgical season or any aspect of the liturgical calendar is not about it. It's about about the ability to encounter Jesus. In other words, the point of Lent is to point beyond the rituals and the practices of Lent into an encounter with Jesus himself. So Lent then, like any part of the liturgical calendar, is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this raises the question. What does Lent have to do with the gospel? Where does Lent come into the gospel story? Where Lent, as you've heard people talk about in the music and in the collect and in the prayers, is inescapably about repenting, which brings to mind the most Christian of questions. What does it mean to repent? At bottom, on one level, it simply means to change direction. To turn towards God, we must turn away from our sins. But how do we get there? How do we get to this place of repentance? I was raised in a Baptist church, and I love the Baptist church. I'm not about to shade the Baptist. 
But the way that I was understood to tell the gospel, they would convince people that they were bad. So you go to them and you explain to them, these are the Ten Commandments. These are the things that God says you must do. You failed at them. You should feel bad about it. Repent and then turn to Jesus. And this actually works because we do a lot of bad stuff. But inevitably, inevitably, the conversation I found always ended up centering on the person. In other words, instead of talking about Jesus, I was trying to convince them they needed Jesus. One of the interesting things that you will notice that if you actually look at something like the way that Peter preaches the gospel in Acts, he does something a little bit different. Rather than simply starting with saying to the people at Pentecost, you're horrible, he tells the story of Jesus, a man attested to you by many signs and miracles, who died, who was risen from the dead. And this amazing thing happens. When Peter tells the story of Jesus, it says the people were cut to the heart. And they said to themselves, what must we do to be saved? In other words, we see our sins not merely through self-analysis. In other words, instead of by turning inward, but through a vision of the holiness of God. Peter does the exact same thing himself. Remember when, when Peter has the miraculous catch of fish? He, he said, Jesus, you don't know what you're doing. And he goes, and, and they fish, and, and they catch all of the fish. And Peter goes, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Isaiah does the exact same thing in the Old Testament. He sees the vision of God. And he goes, woe is me. We see our sins not by self-analysis only, but by looking at the glory of God. I think all of us who become Christians actually have this the same experience. You're sitting in church, maybe you're sitting in church as a kid, and you get this feeling of dread. They're not talking about how bad you are. You're hearing the gospel preach and the cross, and you hear this, this feeling that comes inside of you, oh no, this might be true. And if it's true, everything has to change. So rather than joy, the, the first thing that you experience when the gospel draws close to you is terror. Because you know that if you come to Jesus, everything's going to change. So you're actually trying to hold on to your old life. But it's precisely at that moment, precisely at that moment, when you feel dread, dread you're tempted to despair, you see the holiness of God, and you, then you begin to contemplate your own sin, you feel like Peter. Jesus should leave me because I'm not worthy. But the good thing about Christianity is that Christianity never tells you that you're a sinner without at the same time be giving you grace. One of the things that Satan does, can I talk about Satan here? I don't know how y'all do Tulsa. Y'all have Satan here? Okay, I'll make sure. I know this is international. Okay. <laughs> have you ever done something bad? I mean, I know most of you don't sin, but you know other sinners. Okay, when other people do things bad, you have in your imagination what the sin's going to feel like. And you get excited, and then you go and commit the sin. And the thing that immediately happens after that is like Satan pulls back the curtain, and then he shows you how bad you are. And you're left in this sense of despair. Oh, no, I did this horrible thing. I was mean to someone. And, and you're just left feeling horrible. What makes the gospel glorious is that God reveals to us our sinfulness at precisely the moment that he also reveals to us his grace. So to be a Christian means to repent, to encounter the holiness of God, to acknowledge the inadequacies of our old life, and then to turn towards him. So repentance, turning towards God, is the center of what it means to practice Lent. But it's actually not simply new believers who need to repent. 
They're not the only ones who sit and make, make mistakes. So the new believer and the long-term believer are in the same place. They were always in the process of turning from our sins and toward Jesus. Lent, then, is a season of repentance and renewal, which is actually a grace. I don't know if anyone ever told me this. When I was a kid, I had this idea that the whole of my spiritual life would be an ascent towards glory. So I would get holier and holier and holier and holier and holier. And by the time I was 80 or 90, I'd be like super holy and maybe just float off to heaven. That's kind of how I thought about it. I'd get it all together. But I don't know about you, but that's actually not been my spiritual life. I've taken a couple of steps forward, then a couple of steps back, and a couple of steps forward, and a couple of steps back. I've had good weeks and bad weeks. I've had good months and bad months. I've had good years and bad years. And that's actually, the, the, this is why Lent was such a comfort for me, because the church has a point in the year where it says, we assume that you've messed up. <laughs> We've assumed that at some point in the year, you've gotten off track. In other words, the church does not assume that you become a Christian and you go straight up into glory. It assumes that in every single year, your spiritual life waxes and wanes. Lent is spiritual realism. I've been an Anglican for now maybe 20 years. You know what's never happened to me? I've never arrived at Lent and said, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I have all my sins dealt with. There's nothing I need to do better. I'm studying and praying. I'm just, I'm ready. I can just pass this one over. No. So the great thing about Lent is it presumes the church is imperfect, which means we don't have to lie to one another. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We can say, yes, I need to begin again. Now today, what we call Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, or began on Ash Wednesday, and it concludes on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. This is the nerdy part of, this, of the talk, but it's okay. But how we got there, how we got to these 40 days is something of a mystery. There used to be a one to two day fast in the early church in preparation for Easter. So they get ready for Easter by doing some fasting for, for a few days. And some think that that fast was then extended to Holy Week. So we went from one to two day fast, to a week fast, and then eventually we made it all the way to 40 days, and then they decided, you know, we should baptize people while we're doing all of this fasting and praying, and you end up with Lent and Easter. But the problem is, there's a lot of evidence that that's, actually what, that's not actually what happened. Instead, there were lots of 40-day fasts that preceded baptisms all over the Christian church. In other words, whenever you got baptized in the early church, you would fast and pray for 40 days. And that's really important to think about because back in the day, becoming a Christian can mean the loss of your job. It can mean the loss of standing with your friends and family. In some cases, it can mean the loss of your life. And so they said, you know what we want you to do? We want you to seriously consider what it means to be a Christian. Take 40 days. Fast, pray, reflect. And at the end of that time, if you want to be baptized, then you can be baptized. Then they had this thing called the Council of Nicaea, where they set a date for Easter. Now, Christians used to argue about a lot of the things in the early days. We, we argue about music and when to baptize people. But what they used to argue a lot about back then was calendars. And so that one group of Christians was celebrating Easter on this day. Another group of Christians was celebrating Easter on this day. They had a big meeting. They fought about it. And they said, we're going to have Easter on this day. And the moment they, they, they settled on the date of Easter, everyone almost got the idea at the same time. Let's baptize everybody while we're celebrating the resurrection. 
what better time to bring people into the family of God during the celebration of his resurrection? So the 40-day fast that was related to baptismal preparation got moved over in preparation for Easter, which means we end up with what we call Lent. Now, they also had this really good idea. You know what? While we're all baptizing all of these new Christians, you know the people who hadn't been in church in a long time, people who strayed away? Let's invite them back to church, too. So, in other words, let's use the season of, of, of Lent to bring back wayward Christians. So if you want to come back, you do 40 days of prayer and fasting, you can kind of come back. Then they said, you know what? As we think about it, it's not just the, the really bad sinners, as they would call them, and the new Christians need to repent. We do too. So Lent became about three things. The, the preparation for people to be baptized. People who have been away from the church for a long time were invited back into the congregation and everybody, because they felt like it wasn't just the new people, the new Christians who need to be, who repent, it was us. So Lent became about the entire congregation lamenting their sins in preparation for the celebration of Easter. Now, the thing that's really interesting about this is that this means that there was not, hand, I don't know if you all know this, like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he didn't have like the Ten Commandments here and on the liturgical calendar here, right? <laughs> God isn't sitting up in heaven going, they didn't do it right. They don't get to come on the team. What Lent is, is a way in which the church kind of stumbled around this way and that way, figuring out the best way to encounter Jesus. Lent is not about rules then and doing it right. It's not the collective wisdom of the church. As a matter of fact, Lent didn't originally start off as 40 days. It used to be 36 days because what they did is they would start on Sundays and they would count the, four, the, the six weeks until Easter, and, but Sundays were considered feast days. So you would keep your lifting fast Monday through Saturday, and on Sundays you were off. But 36 is a good biblical number. I don't know this is actually what happened. This is fake history by Dr. McCauley. They said, you know what? What would be really good? If you got to 40. 40 feels biblical. <laughs> and so they moved it back to Ash Wednesday, and Lent became the 40 days from Ash Wednesday through to Easter Sunday, not counting Sundays. I remember when I first became an Anglican, I thought I had to do it right because, you know, the, the, the inner legalist in me kind of rose up and I said, you know what, I'm going to fast like, like the Marines do. I'm, I'm not going to take Sundays off. I'm going to fast every single day. But there is something, I think, wise in the church's practice in that even in the midst of fasting repentance, Sundays were always celebrations. We're celebrating the resurrection. There's always fasting and feasting in our tradition. So this variation, this variation is freeing. There was no one way to do Lent handed down to us from God. The church stumbled around trying this thing and that until it found its way. Lent then, and the practices of Lent, is the collected wisdom of the church in which we said we found it spiritually beneficial to engage in these practices as the preparation for celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. It's a model of discipleship. If it helps you, it's fine. If it doesn't help you, I promise you, the Apostle Paul and Peter are not going to be mad at you, neither is Jesus. All is well. Now, I did not grow up in a, a, a liturgical context. Like I said, I grew up in a Baptist context. And for me, then, the, I, was, I, was, and I want to make sure I say this carefully. I am grateful for all the ways they taught me the scriptural stories. I know all of them because I was raised in one of those contexts. 
But I did feel like after I kind of graduated from high school, like, what's next? They gave me a King James Bible, sent me off to college, and said, read this and don't sin. That was kind of the spirituality I got. Like, read the Bible a lot, don't dance, don't drink, don't sin. Those are like my rules. Rinse and repeat until you die. But I didn't, I didn't have a way, this sounds like a strange thing to say, I didn't have a way of inhabiting the Christian story. I didn't actually know like the nuts and bolts of how to be a Christian. What should we do? And I needed a way of being. I needed a way to kind of actually function as a Christian. And some of the spiritual practices of Lent have been helpful for me. So what are some of them? I'm going to talk about four of them, then we'll say some things about Jesus, and then I'll sit down. Fasting. Part of Lent involves fasting. And there's some danger here, because we can sometimes think of this as kind of an excuse, a spiritual excuse to get in shape. We can just give things up, and, and, and then we can say, well, I will get closer to Jesus, and I'll lose 10 pounds. Like, I, could, I could win both. And I think, we have to, I think we have to be careful about that because we live in a, in a culture that idealizes the human person and the human body. And so we have to be careful that we don't just inhabit the same spiritual dis- dis- dysfunctions that exist out in the wider culture. Lent is about remembering Christ's sacrifice through us making sacrifice. The scriptures say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So fasting is our way of showing that ultimately our dependence upon God to sustain us. And we do things like we're, we're giving up food, we're giving up things. The point of that is not the, the, the fast itself, but to use that fast as an occasion for prayer. The second thing that, that is often um, connected to Lent is not just the giving away of something through fasting, but also the addition of things. Study. If we're honest with ourselves, over the course of the year, our spiritual devotion waxes and wanes. We lose our desire to read and engage God's word. So one of the things that I encourage you to do during the season of Lent is to say, how can I recover my spiritual practice of reading and studying? Here's a, here's a very practical one. I don't know how much Bible you guys read in Tulsa. And in, in, in Chicago, this will be impressive. Maybe you guys do this every Tuesday. Anyways, there are 89 chapters in the Gospels. 89 chapters, you add them all up. 40 days in Lent, you read a little over two chapters a day during the season of Lent without feeling like you're having to do the Bible in a year. You can read the entire gospel as well and really engage them. Let's say you do that one Lent. You know what? I I did the math myself. This is roughly true. There are 87 chapters in the 13 letters of Paul. You can say, you know what? I read a couple of chapters of Paul's letters. During the season of Lent, I can read all of Paul's letters. You know something else? There's only 59 chapters left in the rest of the New Testament. It's true. I did. I counted it. You read a little over, like a two chapters, a chapter and a half, you can read the entirety of the rest of the New Testament. So over three years, you do three lengths, three years, you can read the entire New Testament well, not 50 chapters a day, and then really engage in God's Word. Say, I, I'm making a spiritual practice in Lent to recommit myself to um, reading. So part of Lent involves fasting to recall or unite ourselves to Christ's sacrifice. Another aspect of Lent is the recovery of studying God's word. Charity and social justice. Charity. Charity is an enacted parable of the gospel. We in our society tend to value people because they're useful. We decide who is worthy of help 
and who needs um, our, who's worthy of our assistance, and then we help them. You know, sometimes you think, well, the poor are the poor because they don't work hard enough, right? So we don't need to show them compassion because what they did, they deserve. But at the, at, at the core of the gospel is that none of us had any worthiness vis-a-vis we could make a claim on God that he might save us. But it's a pure act of his grace, he saved us and loved us anyway. So it is precisely in the practice of loving those whom society pushes aside, we enact the gospel. I'm not saying we don't also tell the gospel, that's important too. But, but, but charity, the church's compassion and ministry, is the physical manifestation of the gospel of real communities. And that's important. Charity is important. We should show people how the gospel is lived out and how we treat our neighbor. There's something linked to charity, which is often called social justice. Charity is concern for the poor. Justice is asking the question, how did they become poor? How did they get there? What kinds of structures and dysfunctions exist in society that perpetuate poverty? You know, Christians believe in two types of sin. There's the sins that we commit one against another. And then there's these structural wider sins, the ways in which the world sins against individuals. So as a Christian then, our charity shows that we believe in the problem of individual brokenness and helping these people. But justice involves asking the wider question, what might the kingdom of God look like if we might be able to picture it in the way that we live? As a Christian then, we fast during Lent. We study during Lent. We do works of charity and justice. Once again, not as earning God's favor, but as an attempt to be better disciples. The last one that gets me always in trouble is confession. I shouldn't talk about this, but I'm in for a penny and for a pound. You guys got that analogy here? Okay. So I want to make sure that we sound like good Protestants because you all know and I know that if we go to God and confess our sins, he is just and he will forgive our sins and cleanse from all unrighteousness. We know that part, right? But isn't it also true that even though you've confessed this sin to God, that sometimes your conscience troubles you? And you walk around and you feel like, does God actually forgive me? And sometimes it's really important to, to, to tell someone the things that you've done, especially clergy, so that you can hear someone with spiritual authority say to you what you know to be true, God forgives you. Not because clergy are magical. I wish that I had magical powers. I could then force my kids to listen to me, but I don't. What I mean by confession is that sometimes you just need to hear someone say out loud what you already know. One of the things that, because, I don't know if this happens here, but I've been a pastor in a couple of different places, all internationally as a matter of fact. And inevitably, somebody will come to me and say, can we have office hours? Sure. And they always convince themselves somehow they committed the unforgivable sin. I don't know if this ever happened. Like, like I know that's blasphemy. I've done it. I know it. I did it when I was 13. And I, no, you didn't. All will be well. So part of what it means to be participating in the season of Lent involves the embracing of fasting to remind ourselves of Jesus' own sacrifice. It involves study. It involves works of charity and justice and confession, but not really confession so much the words of absolution that we all need to hear. But this is what I've left for the end is why do any of this at all? Because we follow Jesus. In the preparation for the work that God gave him, the passage that we read, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. 
Scripture says that when the bridegroom is gone, then we will fast. So we're following Jesus when we keep the fast. When Jesus was met with temptation in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted Scripture three times. In other words, when Jesus encountered temptation, he showed that he had God's word hidden in his heart. So we study so that when the tempter comes to us, we might, like Jesus, pour out God's own word to beat back the enemy's attempt to make us despair. Charity and justice. You know what Jesus does as soon as his fast is over? In the Gospel of Luke, he goes out and he preaches his first sermon. You know what the first sermon says? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointing me to preach good news to the poor. Right? To set the oppressed free. He, out of his fasting and prayer, engages in the work of gospel proclamation and justice work. He then goes and heals the needy and the sick and the hurting. That's why they're drawn to Jesus. We do works of charity and justice because Jesus did these things. Now, the confession part is a little bit different. Because Adam and Eve, when they were tempted in the garden, they failed. So they had to confess their sins. Israel, when it was in the wilderness, they were tempted and they failed. And all of us, when we've been tempted, we have failed. But there is one who, when tempted, did not fail, who actually resisted the evil one, who did preach the good news of justice and mercy and forgiveness, who did keep God's word perfectly. We follow Jesus because he is better than us. He's glorious. He has no sin of which to confess, so we confess to him that he is the one who is worthy. In fancy patristic language, they have this thing called the doctrine of recapitulation. That's really fancy. You should say this when you hang out at, at dinner or lunch afterward. You can sound fancy for people. What is the doctrine of recapitulation? The doctrine of recapitulation is that Jesus, in his life and ministry, relives the entirety of human history, and at every point where we failed, he succeeds, and he brings all of human history back towards God. Which is why you see Jesus goes into the water at the Jordan River, and the Spirit comes down, and he comes out from the Jordan River into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to pray. Just like Israel went into the water, came out, went into the wilderness, fasted and prayed, but they failed. So every single part of Jesus' life, it is undoing of that which went wrong with Adam, our, our, our ancestors. And because Jesus turned the human story back towards God, we who follow him in his wake have a path back towards our Savior. Lent then is and forever will be about discipleship. It's about recapturing the vision for the glory of God and in light of that glory, seeing our own sin and saying, I repent. I want to change. I want to follow this glorious king who has blazed the path from here all the way back to glory. Thank you. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. 
If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.